is the New South Wales Country Hour with Michael Condon on ABC Radio New South Wales. Hello again and welcome to the show. Coming up, more on the recovery and emergency relief in the bushfire-affected areas in the north of the state. And abattoirs and processors not publishing the prices they're paying for cattle to the MLA. But they say they're not being secretive and the MLA chart just doesn't reflect the nuanced pricing we have in the market anymore. Because this same business model, which all of us are operating in, seemed to work for one side of the group 18 months ago. Now it's working for another side of the group 18 months later. That doesn't mean it's broken. It's just that there is almost a 30% increase in supply uh, over an 18-month period. And that's got to be counting for something. It just can't be only that we're withholding information or that we're playing around with something around price. What do you think about that? You might have some views on that. You can send us a text 0467 922 684 about transparency in the meat pricing market, particularly from abattoirs and processors. They don't publish their prices they're paying to the Meat and Livestock Australia anymore. They say it's not relevant. Uh, what do you think about that? 0467 is the number to text me here at the Country Hour. But first up to the bushfires, and the state government has trucked 108 tonnes of fodder to fire-affected landholders in the Tenterfield region since Friday, with 160 tonnes in total allocated by the Department of Primary Industries and local land services. And more feed is on the way. Since Wednesday, the Agriculture and Animal Services hotline has received more than 100 requests for a assistance. Kim Honan is speaking here with Andrew Biddle, who's the officer in charge of the command post, looking after the areas affected by those bushfires. Look, it's predominantly been looking for and requesting, um, requesting, um, yeah, sort of emergency fodder to assist, you know, in those first few days after the fire to give, you know, to give these farmers time to, um, to work out what their, what their plans are for, for their livestock after the fire so most of them have been fodder we've had a few um around around water um look we've had some um livestock assessment now field crews did go out and um assist local farmers look you know looking at um animals that have been injured and determining whether those injuries were could be treated or whether animals needed to be euthanized and and on a few occasions we've actually just purely been involved in assisting with the um with the disposal of animals that were um, deceased following the fire. And do you have any idea how many animals have been lost? Look, we really don't um, don't know that. As I um, said, we've sort of been in communication with a hundred odd um, odd farmers, but there are plenty of places where where the fire um, impacted properties and individual farmers have you know either either disposed of or you know if necessary euthanized inj- injured animals because that's what they do as part of being, you know, farmers and, and stewards of their livestock and their land. And we get involved to assist them where necessary. It's not necessarily a requirement for us to report that to us. We certainly can have that. That information can be t- tabulated through the um, damage report, which can be um, accessed via the Department of Primary Industries um, website where farmers can go to that natural disaster damage survey and actually um, provide that information so that it is tabulated for for the region. But that's not what we're doing in the response. 
And how soon were you on the ground delivering the emergency fodder? We had people at um, at and around Tenterfield on that on that first day of the um, of the fire, and we had fodder going out by by Friday. One of the one of the decisions that we made early was not to just absorb the um, the fodder reserves that were, you know, with local um, you know, local um, rural resellers. We actually, we actually bought in hay from outside the area because not everyone was affected by the fire, and you know, people still need. You know, it's it's a it's been a pretty tough season, so people have been feeding livestock for for some time. So we you know we intentionally tried to not make things worse for other people as well. So we had fodder going out by Friday. And how much have you delivered since Friday? We've uh, we've got 160 tonnes allocated, and out of that, either um, either via being picked up or buying del- or by being delivered, we've um, supplied 108 tonnes. So that's um, almost three quarters of what of what we've allocated is already on farm. And who's eligible for it? Is there strict criteria, or are you looking at it? in a case-by-case basis? Everything is done um, case-by-case. So it starts off by people ringing the 1800 number, so 1800 814 647. When a call has been uh, lodged to that number, it's it's um, assessed. The people who you know have that task you know, look at the information that's initially provided and then um, you know, contact the producer involved. And I suppose what we're... You know, what we're, we're trying to, to find that balance between, you know, being, I suppose, being both generous and also responsible with, you know, with, with hay that's been purchased with, um, you know, with, you know, with taxpayers' money. So, um, you know, we're looking at what's happening, you know, sort of, you know, immediately and within the, the first, you know, three to five days. We're looking at properties that have had a significant area of the property impacted by fire so you know as a as a rule of thumb we're looking at um at 30 percent and um and i suppose also looking at you know whether whether properties or you know already have a means of uh, of feeding those animals or whether they are you know they may whether they have no um you know either no you know no feed in the paddocks no fodder available and animal welfare is a um an immediate immediate concern and certainly from time to time, we've had you know exceptional circumstances with individuals where where things are different, and we um, we look you know we look at those also case by case. Andrew Biddle, who's team leader for animal biosecurity and welfare with the Northern Tablelands Local Land Services, he's currently the officer in charge of the command post, looking after the areas affected by those fires around the Tenterfield region. To access support, you can call the Agriculture and Animal Services hotline on one eight hundred eight one four six four seven. About a hundred calls have received so far, and probably more now. One eight hundred. Eight one four six four seven. It's coming up to thirteen minutes past twelve. ABC Listen podcasts, radio, news, music, and more. You're listening to the Country Hour on ABC Radio, New South Wales. 
Without intervention, its estimated koalas could be extinct in New South Wales within 30 years. The state's $190 million koala strategy includes plans to re-establish populations in eight new locations by 2026, with sites chosen in consultation with First Nations communities. A colony in the Riverina is being studied as a model for the introduction of koalas into new habitats in other parts of the state. Emily Doak has more. At Berenbed Station near Narandra in the Riverina, manager Tony McManus was thrilled the first time he saw a koala ambling across the paddock. The last six months we've probably seen six or more koalas, sometimes in the paddock, sometimes up trees. We've had a few on our through, few through our garden. The other day I was just fueling up the ute and one just walked beside, beside the fuel bowser. So yeah, they are here and I think historically they haven't been here in the past and I think their numbers are increasing. Anecdotal sightings like this have sparked the interest of researchers too. 23 koalas were introduced to Narandra in 1972, the first official translocation of koalas for conservation in the state. The colony is now grown to over 290, and as the National Parks and Wildlife Service's Andrew Baker explains, high tech is being put to work to find out more about the population. Our drones, we fly in thermal, but then we have a very powerful spotlight and zoom camera. And so once we get that thermal detection, we're able to switch to colour, turn the spotlight in and zoom in and see, yes, this is a koala. So drones are very much account data, specific time, specific location. Sound recorders are also being installed in national parks and farms along a 100-kilometre stretch of the river. Tighten it up, make sure the microphone's out. Leave it there for 14 minutes. Capturing the sounds of koalas courting. Song leaders are a little device, basically with a microphone in them, and they're programmed to run, in this instance, from dusk till dawn. So they only operate during the evening. That's primarily when the koalas are calling, and that's obviously what we're interested in. They're easy to deploy. You can cover a large area in a short period of time. And so we're using those in the outlying areas to find out, are there koalas there? Once we've come back and collected them, uh, we, put the, we take the card out, we put the data through a computer. And it basically takes hours and hours and hours of recording and it just chops out the little snippets where it thinks there's a koala and then um, they ma- at that point those little snippets get manually verified that yes, it's a koala. Murrumbidgee Landcare is also involved and Project Officer Lee Matheson says the technology is game-changing. Two amazing things that science has these days, technology and citizen science. Like We've got a army of people out along the river looking for koalas and spotting them and feeding that data in but now we're actually able to put with those sightings we can actually come and deploy these song meters in areas so that we can get the physical proof. He says understanding the koala's distribution will help direct conservation efforts. From a land care point of view it allows us to understand where there is healthy remnant vegetation, where there's healthy regeneration of vegetation and just just to tailor those little projects and and, and funding bodies to those little areas that just need that little bit more vegetation. These remnant veggies we're talking about, we're 20 to 50 metres from the river corridor. It's not an area that's arable for cropping. It's it's an area that realistically, if we've revegetated it, we're saving on 
stream bank erosion where we're giving a riparian, healthy riparian to the river. We're also potentially degrade, downsizing flood mitigation by debris and stuff like that. Um, in terms of what it means is we're working together with so much land on the river corridor itself owned by private and big corporations. It's just that really important place for the koala to coincide with humans and, and be able to go from one end of a river to the other. It's an amazing thing to see the buy-in from everybody in this situation because everybody loves a fluffy little eared koala. Back at Berenbed Station, Tony McManus is also keen to see the study's results. When they do put the microphones up and they work out sort of roughly how many are here compared to other areas, they might be able to do some DNA to see where their, where their genetics have come from. I think it'll be interesting to see just where that you know, genetic line has started from and where it, how far it extends. As a, a farmer, do you think that it's important to have that knowledge of the wildlife that's also sharing the environment? Well, I think it's very important. You know, that's a big part of what we do now. It's we, we, we need the wildlife and we sort of conserve that, and especially the koala bear. There's a lot of billabongs here um, and a lot of timber on you know, Red River gums. I think that's not an issue. We've got enough farming country away from that and there's a lot of trees and regrowth through there, so... I'm sure that's beneficial to the koala as well. Tony McManus from Berenbed Station in the New South Wales Riverina speaking there to Emily Doak. It's coming up to 18 minutes past 12 or nearly 19 minutes past 12 on the country hour. Well, from one icon to another, Australian grazers should be farming kangaroos alongside cattle to increase the supply of protein, limit, limit the carbon emissions and provide a new income stream to graziers. ANU professor George Wilson says the Australian red meat sector deals with the dilemma of how to increase production as global demand rises, while also also working to be carbon neutral by 2030 and millions of kangaroos are being left out of the equation. Professor Wilson says kangaroos could be incorporated into sheep and cattle grazing systems across the rangelands, areas that are typically unsuitable for cropping. He wants to set up a trial in New South Wales around Burke and Brewarina and maybe even far southwestern Queensland to see if KGS or kangaroo grazing systems actually work. Co-benefits would include a reduction in soil compaction and an increase in plant cover as kangaroos uh, are a bit more forgiving on the soil. Professor Wilson says we could use the lessons learnt too in the beef industry and set up a meat standard system for kangaroo meat to improve quality and also prices. One of the most interesting things about kangaroos, of which there are many, is that they don't produce much methane. Uh, It's about um, many times less than that, which comes 12 times less carbon dioxide equivalents per kilogram of meat compared to a kilogram of beef. And methane is a big problem, and the livestock industries are aware of this. It's um, Methane from livestock is 9%, yeah, 9% of all of Australia's carbon emissions. It's two-thirds the size of the emissions due to the transport sector. And this has been well recognised by Meat and Livestock Australia and the industry, and they're planning to be carbon neutral by 2030. But a recent report by CSIRO says that they're not going to get there. So that this problem will be a problem for Australia more generally because it will be difficult to meet our Paris targets at the moment. And of course methane is especially important because its global warming effects are very high. 
They've got lots of other advantages too. The skins are the best strength for weight of any leather. And so we've been arguing for a number of years and we believe this report's another plank in the argument is that sustainable use of kangaroos should be integrated into livestock production on the pastoral lands. And that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the 40 to 50 million kangaroos, big number, out there alongside livestock, cattle, sheep and goats on pastoralist properties. At the moment, they're substantially wasted in the hands of pastoralists. There is some small economic benefit, but it doesn't throw to the landholders. And in the meantime, that high population is doing considerable damage to sustainability. And during the last drought, about 13 million kangaroos, the population went down by about 13 million. Many of those starved, and this was a big stress to landholders. They were able to destock their properties, but then they watched the kangaroos dying. We talk about the protein available from kangaroos, but it just doesn't seem to be wanted. The consumer doesn't want it. The export market doesn't want it. I mean, how do we ramp that up? I mean, surely that's that's a real uh, issue no, too. It definitely is. Yeah, I, I mean, I've been banging on about this for about 15 years now. One of the key problems is when you go to graziers with these sorts of ideas and these opportunities, they say to you, well, we make so much more money out of livestock than we do out of uh, kangaroos. Or the only people who make any money out of commercial use of kangaroos are the kangaroo shooters themselves and the kangaroo processing industry. And so my retort to that is, well, let's use some of the skills and knowledge that's been accumulated by the meat industry, by the other red meat industries over the years. They manage the product down the value chain quite closely. And so all of those skills, which enable us to identify animals, to know what species they are, to know what sex they are, to know what age they are, none of that is currently used in the commercial kangaroo industry. And I think this has a big effect on the quality of the product that eventually uh, is available in supermarkets. And that's the point, of course. We're not trying to invent an in industry here. The kangaroo industry already exists. What we're saying is that the kangaroos should be worth a lot more money. There are techniques and skills that can be used that have been gleaned from the other livestock, the other red meat industries, apply those to kangaroos and um, take advantage of the fact that they're producing a low emission meat and that making better use of them instead of increasing the cattle population, which is the current proposal. So at the same time, under the existing situation, we've got proposals to increase the cattle population. At the same time, attempt to achieve these low emission targets under carbon neutral, which, as I've said, we're just not going to do on current trends, according to CSIRO. So instead of increasing the livestock cattle population, let's make better use of the kangaroos that are out there. And in doing so prevent the starvation of animals which will happen during the next drought, really big animal welfare issue, and also um, reduce the, the um, problem that overpopulation of kangaroos causes to land degradation. Talking to, um, I remember talking to Professor Michael Archer about this idea and he was saying that he would like to see big kangaroo farms 
But your proposal is different to that. You're saying kangaroos in, in like, you know, adjacent paddocks to, to cattle perhaps, that could work, and then, you know, uh, using the uh, same sort of supply chains. Is that is that the idea? So you're sort of seeing them sort yeah, of cohabit? I, I don't think I, uh, Mike and I talk about this matter often, and uh, I think our ideas are largely synonymous. Because of this overpopulation and the low value of kangaroos, a number of other techniques are being used to try and reduce their impact on pastures. And one of them is to fence them out. As um, Grazie is listening to this property, uh, this uh, program in Western Queensland, Western New South Wales, and parts of Western Australia. Exclusion know, fencing. There's yeah. a lot of money being spent on exclusion fences, both to control wild dogs but particularly to give grazers the chance to better manage the kangaroos within those fences. So in a way, that's setting up the opportunity for a sense of a form of proprietorship of the animals within those fences, and that's why we think that we can move forward on this. If there is a form of proprietorship, which is the other big problem, of course, is that the kangaroos on a grazer's property don't belong to them. They belong to the Crown, to the state, unlike the livestock on their properties. So that their management's largely in, under the control of outside agencies, not themselves. So these fences do provide an opportunity for graziers who are interested to better manage the kangaroos within those fences and to use them in a more efficient way, more effective way, to be able to value them, to increase their value down the value chain and to hopefully get a better return. A lot of people sort of say to me, George, you're, uh, you're a dreadful person for favouring commercial use of kangaroos. But the answer to that, of course, is, well, what are we going to do with the 70% of Australia that can't grow crops, the current livestock raising areas, where most of these kangaroos are, especially in southern Australia? Let's um, integrate them and their production into the use of those lands. Let's learn from Aboriginal Australians. They're a uh, um, potentially major player in this, these ideas. Uh, through closer management, we can increase quality, increase, improve the description, the consistency of supply, and also develop new markets. Yeah, you, uh, the, the, the meat industry is talking a lot about changing feeds around to reduce methane by using asparagopsis and things like that. So, but you're, you're thinking that that's never going to reduce to the level you would see if you say we're farming kangaroos. Well, no, that's right. I mean, the, while seaweed's helpful in feedlots and in dairies, I really can't see how it's going to be useful at scale on the rangelands where the bulk of the livestock industries... By the time animals come into feedlots and into dairies, yeah, sure, it can help. And it is very effective, but it's costly. And uh, in the meantime, we've got these low-emission-producing animals out there side by side with the cattle that are being treated in these other ways um, to reduce their emissions. Um, but let's make better use of the animals that are out there, that this integrated approach, which has got strong support from graziers in western New South Wales, particularly through the New South Wales Kangaroo Management Task Force, of which I'm a member, where we can see uh, improvements in sustainability and a return on the investment by the Future Drought Fund. If we could set up some trials, that's what we're interested in doing. We're interested in finding landholders who maybe have these fences that we've talked about that are interested in a different way of managing 
kangaroos are aware that what we're doing at the moment is not working and uh, we've got an opportunity here to do something useful that'll be less wasteful and use animals that after all evolved in this environment requiring that production systems be based on livestock that evolved in the northern hemisphere i think it's time for some some rethinking of all these issues how do you get past the fact that you know kangaroos are really a dirty name in terms of part for many pastoralists they consider them a pest and you're getting past that into seeing them as a as a product or as a commodity or as, as a <coughs> something valuable on their on their farm well, that comes down to price, doesn't it? I mean, the, the, I can remember a number of years ago when goats were regarded as a, a pest to be uh, rounded up, to be shot, to be got rid of. Goodness, how has that changed in the last um, decade or so? And the, the, um, they're now much more closely monitored and um, prices have risen so that a pest has been converted into an asset yeah, but we have Indeed. a strong international demand for goat meat, and we always have, I suppose. Well, no, obviously we didn't because they were a pest previously. Um, but, you know, there's now a demand. Value's gone up. Let's try and do that with kangaroos. Uh, and we're not talking about replacing the beef industry, but I'm just saying that if we're going to... If we're planning to increase red meat production from the rangelands and... Let's have a look at making better use of the kangaroos that are out there that are currently being wasted. And if by doing so we can also earn some carbon credits through the uh, carbon trading schemes that are available, then that is another mechanism for increasing their value in the hands of graziers. That's Honorary Professor George Wilson from the Fenner School of uh, the Australian National University talking about uh, grazing kangaroos with sheep and cattle in the pastoral areas, areas where we can't, of course, grow uh, grow crops. Uh, and we uh, had, a, had a bit of reaction to that. Someone's texted in saying you could mate the kangaroos to the cattle and sheep and get the perfect animal. And another person's just texted in saying what a load of rubbish. And somebody else has texted in, on the issue of koalas, saying there's no regulation for national parks and other public reserves, which make up 86% of the publicly forested land in New South Wales, to record the flora and fauna. So there's no real data there on koala numbers in those national parks, uh, saying that all the fuss about extinction in New South Wales is not scientifically justified. And, um, yeah, there's a few other texts there as well. I might uh, get to them a little bit later on in the program. It's 29 minutes to one. Shortly we'll have some weather details, a bit more benign weather in terms of fire and a bit of rain around the place, but mainly uh, not so much over the divide. But uh, more on that shortly. But uh, now let's get some news headlines from Adam's story. Good afternoon. Afternoon, Michael. Uh, <clears throat> start off with that tragic story down at uh, Dalesford in Melbourne. Uh where her car uh, mounted a pavement and hit a group of people in a beer garden, uh, killing five people. He's uh, The driver's going to be interviewed by detectives this afternoon. Now, they say he's not known to police. He didn't return a blood alcohol reading. Uh, so they're looking as though it is, was a, a, tragic, uh, a tragic accident rather than anything deliberate. Uh, not, a, it, not a medical episode or anything like well, that? Well, it could be, but, mm. yeah, certainly not... Uh, yeah, nothing that was deliberate or... You know, uh, as a result targeted. of drugs or alcohol. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, evac- uh, evacuations of injured people uh, from Gaza through Egypt uh, have stopped for the time being. Um, 
It, uh, Egypt says an attack on an ambulance and recent strikes on a refugee camp on refugee camps have uh, halted movements of uh, teams going in and uh, bringing people out. Uh, meanwhile, Jordan's King Abdullah says his country's air force has been able to airdrop urgent medical aid to the uh, Jordanian field hospital uh, in Gaza. So a bit of aid getting in that way. Back home, Services Australia set to recruit 3,000 new staff members to uh, help reduce waiting times for Centrelink and Medicare services. Uh, the Government Services Minister says about 800 people have already been hired, with the rest to be set, be, uh, set to be on the books by early next year. Uh, this is all about uh, reducing waiting times, particularly on the phone. I haven't had to deal with it, but I've heard horror stories about mm. the time that people have been on hold. Most people just give up. I they think they just mm. give up, yeah. Or they or they go into a they, uh, and that's into the thing, a service centre uh, and yeah. then get told no you no, can't you do go, it here you got to do it go, on the phone. It's on the phone. Yeah. I know. I've heard that. I've actually heard people say that exactly. Yeah. I yeah. had a relative dealing with a childcare um, thing. Yeah. Yes. I know. I know. <laughs> Went or, all the way in or, or sent online. all the way home yeah. or online, which is great if you don't have great internet service. Yeah, you know? that's it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Economists are tipping interest rates to go up tomorrow when it holds its uh, monthly meeting. Uh, um, they are uh, tipping probably around about another quarter percent uh, at this stage, uh, coinciding with the uh, running of the Melbourne Cup, which I think <laughs> could be a bit of a washout, apparently, uh, is uh, the, one of the forecasts I heard. And uh, there's a new flyover uh, which, uh, to Sydney's uh, domestic airport terminal, and it's been named after the country's first female airline pilot, Captain Deborah Laurie. She had to fight her way to fight her way through the High Court to become uh, an airline pilot in the seventies after uh, Sir Red Jansett that uh, it was too unsafe for a woman to fly a plane. The irony being that this flyover will be over uh, Red Jansett Drive. <laughs> <laughs> this uh, the and it will open to the uh, the public on Sunday. Mm, okay. All right. Well, we'll uh, we'll be listening at one o'clock for mm-hmm. the latest in the news. Yep. Okay, and uh, we'll talk to you then. Adam's story will be back, as they said, at 1 o'clock. Let's find out what's happening with the weather details. Siobhan Park is at uh, the uh, Bureau. Good afternoon. Uh, good afternoon, Michael. Now, in terms of the rain, so the rain has sort of petered out now, but we've got some good falls over the weekend. Yes, that's right. We had uh, plenty of rainfall in some parts of uh, along the North Coast and the Hunter Coast uh, because of the development of coastal trough and some locations. For example, Port Macquarie, for example, and some parts of the Hunter received more than 100 millimeters of rainfall. But other parts along the coast generally had good rainfall. You know, good rainfall totals are about 20 to 40 millimeters in many parts. That certainly helped to uh, put uh, out um, many of the fires. Uh, but for today, uh, because uh, this uh, coastal uh, trough has uh, has disappeared, uh, we don't expect uh, uh, as, uh, as significant rainfall as what we saw during the weekend, although some uh, few showers may still be lingering on uh, along the north coast, especially north of uh, Kopsaba, where we may see another additional, maybe isolated 10 to 20 millimeters in some locations, but uh, other parts just generally few millimetres along the north coast, if any. Uh, and also we expect some development of afternoon showers or thunderstorms in northern inland and the western half of the state, uh, but probably not much rainfall either. 
Uh, then uh, from uh, tomorrow onward, we expected uh, maybe some th- uh, thunderstorms or showers uh, extending across the south and the west before extending to much of the states by midweek. And uh, from tomorrow onward, we may see some uh, severe thunderstorms uh, returning in parts of the south and the west, especially on Thursday. Uh, Thursday looks quite favorable for, favorable for severe thunderstorms across the southern inland and the central inland, where you know, we may see you know, uh, maybe localized uh, heavy falls as well as uh, uh, damaging winds and uh, large hailstones and so on. Um, and it looks like these showers and stormy weather looks set to continue on through the week. Uh, and then uh, we may see also warming trend. Um, I mean, despite the cooler weather we had across the east, uh, thanks to cool, uh, cool easterly airstream during the weekend, but we will be seeing a warming trend over the coming days, especially in the west by the latter part of the week, where we may see temperatures returning to maybe mid to high 30s in many parts during the latter part of the week. And the weekend rainfall, there wasn't a lot for the inland, mainly uh, on the eastern half of, the, of New South Wales? Uh, actually, uh, through the week, especially in, um, for, from during the midweek onward, we expected uh, delivery of uh, rainfall in terms of uh, showers and thunderstorms. And because the showers and thunderstorms are very much localized, uh, in some parts of the uh, southern and central inland and slopes, we may see some moderate totals, but it will be very much isolated. But other parts, it will be just a hit and miss. Okay, hit and miss, all right. And, um, yeah, so and uh, over the weekend, like Tenderfield, they get... Uh, they- uh, you, you were talking about coastal rain, but Tenderfield did get some rain. It did sort of dampen down some of the fires there in terms of like 20 millimetres or so? Yes, uh, that, that, that's my understanding during the weekend and uh, all, over those parts. Uh, I mean, especially the on the eastern side like of Mitten yeah. and Boyder as well. I think they got yeah. some decent falls there. Yeah, and in Boida area, looks like it, uh, the whole area got widespread 10 to 30 millimeters, mm-hmm. uh, although it was been more along the coast. Uh, and the Tenterfield uh, area at least had uh, something like uh, 5 to 10 millimeters, locally reaching about 20 millimeters. Uh, so that certainly helped uh, to putting out uh, the fires, although... Uh, some fires are still continuing mm, on about mm. the Tenterfield, but probably uh, with the decreased fire danger rate, ratings for the next few days, um, I think it will be favorable for um, for firefighting effort at least, uh, and that will suppress the fire uh, at least until the midweek. Uh, although towards the end of uh, the week, we may see the return of high fire dangers. Right, okay, so the temperature is heating up and for that part of the world as well. That's right, yeah, yeah I yeah. think. But uh, not Hopefully until they'll the get end. a break yeah. on it between now and then. That's right, yes, but mm. at least not until the end of the week, yes. Okay, all right, Juan, thanks for that. Yeah, my pleasure. It's coming up to 21 minutes to one. Getting quite a few uh, texts on the kangaroo issue. Uh, and oh, On the rain, first of all, someone's saying the rainfall has been terrible in the Bega Valley, well down on the 2019 rainfall, and uh, we thought that that was bad. They're saying they just can't catch a break. Very, very dry in the Bega Valley, also Monero as well. Uh, on the uh, kangaroos, uh, Julie says uh, the, sho- the sheep flog the pastures more than any other animals. And uh, Julie says she would welcome seeing roos on her small place. Uh, on the on the uh, uh, Swaggy and Ill- Illawarra says leave the kangaroos alone. Uh, on the feral goats, Trish says feral goats are a pest. If graziers wish to farm them and make money out of them, they should use their own land and not the rangelands. 
on the kangaroos. Caitlin says regarding kangaroos, the trials are all well and good, but where are we going to offload the meat? It's only a niche, and uh, there just isn't the demand. And uh, similar uh, talk from Jason, previous pushes to use kangaroo meat fell flat because people just didn't buy it, so what's changed now? Well, they're talking about a, an increased or an improved grading system to make it... Uh, to uh, use some of the uh, some of the intelligence they've got from uh, Meat Standards Australia in regards to uh, meat and using it in kangaroo and hopefully uh, increase demand and also increase increase the quality as well. Uh, Jan says kangaroo tail is delicious, especially when it's cooked in a camp oven. And um, again, uh, Richard from Narrabri saying that the key component of this strategy is that people need. Uh, to want to eat the kangaroos. Unfortunately, most people don't want to eat Skippy here or anywhere else in the world. And um, uh, Tony in Armadale says the biggest problem with roo meat is the flavour and toughness. He says, call it premium or gourmet and then export it, says Tony. It's uh, 19 minutes to one here on the New South Wales Country Hour. You're listening to the Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. Well, if you head along to the Meat and Livestock Australian website today and check out the over-the-hooks prices for cattle, you won't learn too much. The website currently has all the prices at $0 a kilo. The monthly report by MLA has been struggling for months and now it seems it's obsolete. And the reason, according to MLA, is, not that, is, is that not enough abattoirs are publishing their grid prices. It's not a great look during a time when transparency in the meat supply chain is being questioned. Matt Brand asked Patrick Hutchinson, the boss of Australia's Meat Industry Council, why his members are keeping the numbers under wraps. I think it's a bit of a misnomer to say we're not publicising our data, Matt. It's moreover that we're not providing individual information to MLA for them to create that report. That report has also been obsolete because grids are now so specific for our industry that they are based around brands. Mixing all of those together to try to come up with a singular index will ensure that we're not comparing apples with apples. So I think that more importantly, we've got to be very mindful that what we're asking for uh, as far as information is already there. Farmers, stock agents, feedlotters can all contact a processor at any time, and we know that they do to get those different um, grids, to get those different specifications and to work out for themselves how they manage that process. So I think that we've seen a lot of information, a lot of media around price. I think that we all have to take an exceptionally cold shower and sit down and look at it in the reality that it is at the moment because this same business model, which all of us are operating in, seemed to work for one side of the group 18 months ago. Now it's working for another side of the group 18 months later. That doesn't mean it's broken. It's just that there is almost a 30% increase in supply uh, in, over an 18-month period, and that's got to be counting for something. It just can't be only that we're withholding information or that we're playing around with something around price. The former boss of the ACCC, Professor Alan Fells, he told the Country Hour that he's suspicious of the red meat supply chain, and he said one of the easiest ways of making a profit is when your costs fall, but you keep your prices up for a time. Eventually, you might have to bring them down, but in that interim period, your profit margin can go way up. Now, is that what we are seeing abattoirs in Australia do at the moment? To be blunt, absolutely, because farmers certainly seem to enjoy that over 2020, 2021 and 2022. However, our members uh, support uh, markets, over 100 markets all over the world. 
Yes, they would be recouping margin uh, whilst they had been burning at least minus $300 per beast and $30 per small stock body over the last three years. So it's only 18 months ago that the same farming organisations were concerned about the viability of processing. So that same model, that same structure, those same buyers are all still operating in exactly the same way. Pointing fingers at each other gets us nowhere. All it does is help politicians ensure that they potentially are going to be able to get voted in next time. That's not what this industry is about. This is one of Australia's oldest industries, and it has worked in this fashion over this time and grown all together. Pointing fingers helps nobody. Patrick Hutchinson is CEO of the Australian Meat Industry Council. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello, I'm Stephanie Smale. Join me for The World Today, a community devastated after a car crashed into a beer garden in regional Victoria, killing five people, including children. Dozens of Australians arrive home from Gaza as the United States diplomatic blitz continues there. And will Wang Wang and Funi stay or will they go? And what will the giant panda's fate say about our relations with China? Those stories and more coming up on The World Today. And on the country, our solid water supply coupled with lucrative bale prices has allowed cotton growers in southern New South Wales to increase their plantings by more than 60% this season. Last year, just 50,000 hectares was planted across the southern valleys, which takes in the Murrumbidgee, Murray and Lachlan Valleys. Cara Jeffrey spoke with Southern Valleys Cotton Growers Association President Joe Briggs, Joe Briggs from Collyamberley about the outlook. 81,000 hectares has gone in. Um, 2017, 2018, I believe, uh, was the record with um, 90,000, so we're not too far off it. And how does it compare to last year when a lot of um, the areas were impacted by floods and it was a, a washout for, for some growers last season? Yes, um, hectares are fairly well up from, from last year. I couldn't exactly tell you off the top of my head, but um, no, it, it's a big improvement on um, on the weather-wise for, for this season. Cotton at the moment, how has it emerged and has the cool weather this spring had much of an impact on it? Yeah, the cool weather has been um, a bit of an issue, to be honest. Um, we have replanted about 10% of the valley. Um, it's, some guys are reporting it's the best start they've had in many years, where other guys are having a lot of dramas. Just the rain a couple of weeks ago um, really caused a, a few issues. Um, here on our place, we had to replant 50 hectares because we got 50 mil of rain. Um, but on, on our other property, 15 kilometres away, uh, it only had 30 mils and that um, is some of our best cotton there so it is definitely a mixed bag, mixed bag across the, the valley. And with that replanting did pe- most people stick with cotton or did was the window a bit tight for some and they had to look at maize or some other options there? Majority of the guys I've been talking to um, still were in the good window for for cotton uh, I don't think there's been much cotton uh, planned cotton area going to other crops but uh, here in Collingwood, there is a lot of uh, corn uh, and sunflowers going in uh, this year for a bit of uh, diversity. Back on the water, on the back of that flooding last year, high rainfall, how are water allocations looking for growers? Yeah, water allocation is actually really good at the moment. I um, I think we're at 46%, so with uh, fairly healthy carryover. 
accounts here on the Murrumbidgee. It's um, yeah, no, it is a good season. Um, I dare say we'll end up with a lot more by the end of the season, but water availability is um, definitely not a stress this season. That's got to be a relief for growers, given how things have been in the past, and, and particularly when in those drought years. Yes, definitely. It's um, it's, it's always something, but um, I'm just glad it's not water this year. So. How are cotton prices looking for growers? Is it a lucrative year to be growing cotton? Yeah, cotton prices are pretty solid um, at the moment. We're around that mid 600s to 700s, as we saw last year with um, low yields. It doesn't matter what the price is, you've still got to get an average yield to, to make some dollars. Obviously, you're really just um, at the emergence stage at the moment, so too hard to say what type of year that you're going to be looking at for harvest a long way off for the cotton. Oh yeah, fourteen bales for sure. We're um, we're aiming high. Um, no, look, it's um, it, yeah, definitely too early to tell. But um, it, as long as we can keep it um, tracking with these warmer days forecasted like for the next week, um, yeah, it could be a pretty good season. But um, anyway, here's to hoping, and um, yeah, we'll see how we go. That's Southern Valley Cotton Growers Association President Joe B- Joe Briggs from Collie Amberley speaking there with Cara Jeffrey. You're listening to The Country Hour. It's coming up to 10 minutes to one. Well, have you struggled to access childcare in your farming community? Well, advocates say childcare shortages in regional Australia are crippling essential services like health and exacerbating agricultural labour shortages. Grain Growers Major Projects General Manager Caitlin Leonard says childcare is an issue that members have raised over and over again, and it's prompted the organisation to hold a series of roundtables to find a few solutions. Look, it's becoming an enormous challenge uh, for rural and remote communities. We're seeing it in, in regional centres as well. So, um, you know, a lot of agriculture happens around regional centres, but the, the pr- problem becomes even more stark as you step into those rural and remote areas. It's a challenge of having access to the staff, the centres that exist in some of these towns, but, you know, the problem's so much bigger than that. It's about having access to accommodation for those staff to work in. It's about having the venues in smaller rural and remote areas that are suitable for um, early education and care facilities. It's about having access to the information of what's going to work really well for your community. So there are a a, a number of different types of models of early education and care, everything from in-venue care, family daycare, you know, your traditional daycare centres. But communities are really struggling to access both the staff, the funding and the infrastructure in order to establish them in rural and remote communities. And so what kind of impact is that having on communities and, and particularly on agricultural operations? It comes down to a workforce issue. We've got a lot of people that exist within the ag sector who are engaged in the sector, educated in the sector and, and really keen to be involved, but they're struggling to get back to work because they can't access adequate childcare for their kids. So, you know, we, we hear a lot of stories about the workforce problem that exists within agriculture and Adequate childcare is a really key tool in unlocking workforce potential for ag for the ag sector. This might not be an area that people would expect grain growers as an organisation to be involved in. What's driving your involvement in, in the childcare okay. issue? Yeah, I certainly had a few um, confused sounding people on the uh, on the end of the phone line when I started reaching out, particularly to the early childhood um, education sector and, and even academics in the space. I was sort of like, why are grain growers giving me a call? But the link is, is really that workforce one. Um, we run a, a national policy survey each year and 
for a number of years, those workforce concerns have been right in those in the top three primary primary issues for growers. And we wanted to sort of take a look at the problem and find a, a niche way of attacking that problem. And childcare just became a, a you know, access to childcare became a glaring problem in people getting back to work. So it's a it's a really natural natural fit when you when you delve into it. Have you yourself had trouble accessing childcare? <laughs> Unfortunately, yes, I've had I've had a terrible terrible battle with it. I'm uh, I'm based in Griffith in New South Wales, and and Griffith's a decent sized town. It's got a number of um, childcare facilities. There are family daycare and things like that, but the the waiting list to get into the daycare facilities are enormous. Um, I can't speak to all of them, but I know one of them that there's 70 families sort of in front of in front of someone like me on the list waiting to get in. And then it's a matter of also you might get in for X amount of days, but having the days that suit what you'd like to work and what suit your working environment is a further challenge. That's Grain Growers Australia Major Project General Manager Caitlin Leonard speaking there to Fiona Broom about childcare. Let's go to markets. <laughs> First up, Bendigo Sheep and Lambs. Good afternoon. Lamb numbers dropped back to 17,000 head, 9,000 less, and quality showed a big decline, with hardly any heavy or even neat trade lambs available. Even the southern lambs coming in were described as disappointing today. One major export and one supermarket didn't operate. Prices bounced around on quality. There was a top of $176 for heavy suckers up around 32-34 kilos carcass weight. The next best price was 163 and there was only five sales above $150, showing a lack of weight. Overall, any of the fresher suckers above 24 kilos carcass weight were firmed to slightly easier at 480 to 520 cents. Where the market lost momentum by five to ten dollars was on the general run of trades. A lot of 20 to 23 kilo suckers from 84 to 115 dollars at 420 to 480 cents. Processors were still strong on light MK sole lambs at $50 to $80 and small but well-bred store lambs were dearer at $36 to $75 to average $55 to the paddock. Sheep sales still flat with the exception of some ewes which were pushed out by restockers to $51. Most sheep $15 to $35 a head. Jenny Kelly for MLA. Let's go to Corowa now. Good afternoon, 13,800 sheep and lambs were penned at Corrawith spawning with 8,800 new season lambs on offer. There was less weight across the yarding and the quality was mixed with most, most of the regular buyers present, joined by strong local and northern restocker competition. Overall, the market was softer. New season light and medium trade lambs is 3 to $8, selling from 87 to $116. Heavy trade lambs, 6 6 slipped $6, selling from 99 to 136 Heavy lambs eased $7, reaching $138. Light lambs, the processor, were 2 to $10 softer, selling from 47 to 95 And restockers paid up to from $40 to $86 and up to 93 for medium weight lambs back to the paddock. Sean New Season lambs softened $3, trade weight selling from $105 to $125. Mutton sold to mixed trends. Heavy crossbred use slipped 2 to $7. I'm Caroline Ronald for MLA at Corowa. Dubbo sheep and lambs. Numbers were down by 2,400 for a yarding of 10,800 lambs. It was mostly plain quality yarding with only odd pins of well-finished heavyweight lambs along with very odd pins of finished tray weights. There were large numbers of secondary merino lambs and large numbers of exotics yarded. Not all the regular buyers were operating with a few southern processes absent. 
Lightweight lambs for the processors were up to $13 cheaper, with the 12 to 18 kilogram two scores selling from 20 to 43. Trade weight new season lambs were 4 to 8 cheaper, selling from 44 to 110, to average 4.75 cents. Trade weight old lambs were up to $12 cheaper with quality a factor. Trade weight old lambs weighing 20 to 24 kilograms sold from 42 to 95. Heavyweight lambs were firm to $4 dearer, with the lambs over 24 kilograms selling from 100 to 156, to average between 480 and 500 cents. Merino lambs were 10 to 15 cheaper with trade weights selling from 30 to 86. The hoggets were cheaper, selling to $60. We have the balance of the lambs and 5,500 muttons still to be sold. This is David Monk reporting from Dubbo. Wagga cattle. Good afternoon. Numbers lifted slightly to 3,880. Quality was fair to very good with great supplies of heavy bullocks. Cow numbers increased to 880. However, not all processors made it to the market this week and domestic cattle felt the pinch. A few veal, 170 to 185. Trade steers were back 20 cents, 154 to 217. Feeder steers... Light and medium weights were unchanged, 185 to 234. Feeder heifers were back 10, 165 to 190. Trade heifers lost 8 cents, 154 to 185. Heavy grown steers were back 10, 180 to 243. Bullock seized back 5, 185 to 242. Heavy heifers sold 30 cents cheaper, 166 to 216. Heavy cows are unchanged, 176 to 193. And the middle run of leaner types lost 10 cents, 137 to 163. I'm Leanne Dax for MLA. Forbes Cattle. Numbers held steady this summer with agents yarding 1,153 head. Quality continues to be mixed with both well-bred and secondary cattle on offer. The usual bars are present competing in a firm to slightly better market. Yelling steers lifted 3 to 5 cents a kilo with processors paying from 185 to 220 for some handy runs of finished cattle. The planer types to feed received from 165 to 227. The heifer portion held fairly steady with those to feed from 155 to 195. Processors paid from 165 to 215 for the better types. Heavy steers and bullocks were 2 to 5 cents better to sell from 175 to 213. Grown heifers reached 153 to 193. Cows were fairly firm with heavy two score from 135 to 160, three score 155 to 185. This has been Crystal Ridley at Forbes from LA. Tamworth Cattle. Good afternoon. A rain reduced panning of just a thousand head. A mostly good quality panning of young cattle displaying varying levels of finish. Some very good cows and grown cattle demand outstripped supply from the full field of buyers. Trends were dearer throughout with lightweight yearlings to restockers posting strong gains. Steers to 330 kilos, 160 to 279 cents a kilo. The heifers 160 to 212. Medium and heavyweight yearling steers posted moderate improvements, 172 to 246 to feed with the trade reaching 235 cents. Similar trends for medium and heavy heifer yearlings along with some breed and quality related improvement. Feed is 165 to 217 with trade to 238. Heavy three score grain steers to process as much as 25 cents dearer, 194 to 248 cents. A slightly dearer cow market with medium weight two and three scores 116 to 158 and heavy three and four scores 155 to 190 cents a kilo. James Armitage for MLA in Tamworth. And you've been listening to the New South Wales Country Hour. It's coming up to news time, one o'clock.